0: Recently, we had a chance to speak to the two gentlemen who wrote a fantastic book called Nothing But a Good Time, Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock. and we didn't get to ask all the questions that we wanted to ask. Nope. And well, I had a million more questions
1: we than we'll probably get to ask them today, too. <laughs> yeah, we'll
0: probably not be able to ask all the questions we have as well. It's a great read. It's a book, especially if you like rock and roll. We highly recommend that you read it. And Tom and Richard are here to answer some more questions that we weren't able to ask last time. Gentlemen, thank you again for coming back. We appreciate it. Our pleasure. Uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, us. Having us. You? again. In essence, you guys, during the writing of this book, and I'm sure growing up, spent a lot of time studying the 80s, the music, the lifestyle, the culture. And after writing this book and preparing it, what would you say is the most important story of the hard rock explosion that not enough people know about?
2: You know, I think the most important story is its origins, which is something that we talk about a lot in the book. And by its origins, I mean, and I don't know if we talked about this at all last time, but the fact that people, the overall image people have of this stuff in their mind is something that is like super glitzy and glammy and slick. And like the music is really overly produced and like people do, you know, Choreographed stage moves and light like, like everything is like a big Vegasy type of show. But what we really show in the book is that maybe at some point that was what at least some of the bands were putting out there. But where this stuff comes from is a really gritty DIY place. It's guys who, especially in the early '80s, like. No one in in the mainstream world wanted anything to do with them. Certainly not in the mainstream music world and certainly not with the labels. And these guys just did it all on their own. They started their own record labels or they put out albums on really small labels and they just hustled and hustled and hustled and came up with their own look and their own stage show. And they flyered 24-7 and they promoted yeah. 24-7. And eventually this stuff breaks through, but there was no saying that that was ever really going to happen. And... The amount of drive and perseverance and grit that all these guys show is something that I don't think that, and I, I think I could say that we don't think that it was something that they really get the credit for.
1: You know, you guys really illustrate well the whole firing thing, because anyone who's visited that part of Los Angeles definitely has seen the poles covered sometimes two, three, four layers deep. They must come along and scrape them off, I guess. But everyone has seen that but the level at which it went on i don't think even someone who was around there from around there would know that that's the way it was that's how much of it was going on i'm just thinking of the trees you know guys
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well there was no other way i know. You know, there was nothing. What they else did what they had do? to do, right, Tom? They had to do what they had to do. There, there was no internet. There was no, uh, you know, and I mean, it reveals itself in our book that the reason why Poison fired more than anyone else is that C.C. Deville's mom owned a copy shop.
1: Yes, so I you love had to, that. I so love you,
3: that. That was what was the deal, you know? You what gotta I, take, you gotta take any edge you can. But th- again, there was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. So you had to get in front of the eyeballs, and that was the place to do it because until it started
1: to sell and then radio came to a lot of it or things started to catch on the way Van Halen had like Quiet Riot did until that started to happen there was really no way to let people know you're going to be at the country club that weekend right
3: I mean there was probably the couple newspapers and then the, right, right. and and then flyer. that's it it's standing kind, on the strip telling people
0: it's kind of crazy to realize that only 30 years ago that was the world of music and that was how it was done because now Compared to how it was done in the 80s, 30, 40 years ago, this is a cakewalk. And these bands would have probably been even bigger with the outrageousness and the uh, craziness that some of them uh, had on stage and live. So
1: one of the things that was part of the middle part of the book was the way things were, how people came together, how things rose and then fell and fell apart and then got back together and moved forward but there's a debate and it's kind of neat to see that uh, both camps seem to disagree on some things and agree on others when it comes to the question do you guys think that grunge really killed anything or was it just a normal music cycle change
2: i think that's a debate that you know i guess there's no true answer to but because I, I, I guess the the answer is in my opinion at least is it's a little bit of both the grunge thing is real like that happened and you know i mean all these bands they always point to the Nirvana moment and then they say like and then Nevermind came out and my career was over and like you know and and it's but is that over,
1: is that an oversimplification oh it's is totally it
2: most, i mean totally. Really? it's a stand-in for a lot of things that happened and that was just you know Nirvana and Nevermind is sort of that the sort of big Bang type of moment, but of course they're talking about just grunge in general and really just sort of mainstream taste change. I mean, it wasn't only like mainstream music that changed; it was like you know, teen movies in 1988 were different than teen movies in 1992. You right, know, right, in right, terms right of Whether right. you're watching certainly like,
1: by 98, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Like you know, in 88, like you're watching whether you're watching like the Breakfast Club or stuff like that, and then in 92 right. you're watching Reality Bites. Like the whole culture shifts, but you know the point. Being that the grunge thing is one of several things that happens and guys in some of the bands, you know, Fred Curry from Cinderella makes the point that like, well, around 90, 91, like a lot of us just weren't doing our best work. Either and he Mm -hmm. acknowledges Cinderella being one of those bands, and then also, like, these bands are already changing. The example I always bring up is Poison doing Flesh and Blood, they're already wearing like cowboy hats and jeans, and you know, their hair isn't sprayed up anymore, and like, that's all Mm -hmm. pre grunge, but they already don't look like the poison of Look What the Cat Dragged in or Nothing But A Good Time, so like that whole shift is happening, and it's like, well, fans are already maybe feeling like, you know, the fans are growing up, and it's like maybe some of them want Poison to look like they did in the Talk Dirty to Me video, and then there's maybe other fans that actually that would have turned them off, so the bands are like, they're sort of in this moment of transition anyway, and then grunge and all that stuff comes in, and it's like, there's a lot of them don't make it out of that, at least for a while.
3: You
1: guys did a great job of showing the details of how the bands perceived how things were going or not going so well and as the bands downsized and in some cases shut down and and went home at least for a while you did a really good job of using all the interviews that you had done with a lot of people who went through this stuff and it also showed how bands have come out the other side now and um, I had a situation, guys, and Marcus, I think we've talked about this, where 20 years ago I was working for a classic rock, classic metal record label called CMC International, right? Mm-hmm. And when I got to know all the guys, like the, uh, the people who work yeah. with Blue Oyster Cult.
3: <laughs> Your and- label is like the life raft. <laughs>
1: yeah. and, well, here's the thing, and this is what I found out, and, and you may, you're right there. When I started talking to the guys from Blue Oyster Cult or Eddie Money, I found out all about the weekend touring deal, that was part of their life, like three out of four weekends a month or sometimes four out of four. With Eddie Money, he was gone every weekend because he kept having kids. I kept telling him, Eddie, you got to slow down. But he was on the road like that all the way through to almost to the end of his life. But what I saw was, and this is the surprise ending in your book for me, and Marcus and I were just talking about this earlier, and we never really got to discuss our feelings on this. The thing is, is that the surprise ending is that so many of these bands are on the road Well, when everybody's on the road, they're on the road now in a different way. And some of them were saying how they do better at the end of the day because of the way that they're operating now, which is that weekend touring short runs kind of thing that is based on what the classic rock guys were doing 20 years ago as they transitioned from the big glitzy tours down to that.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've said is that probably if we tried to do this book 10 or 15 years ago, it would have been a real bummer. (laughs) You know, because like everybody would have just been like, I can't get work, I can't do this, I can't do that. But, you know, approaching this as we did even four years ago, this was already all happening. These bands are out working they are enjoying the fact that this music has become the new classic rock. You know, if Eddie Money was classic rock 20 years ago, I guess he still is or would have been. But this stuff now for 50-year-olds, 55-year-olds, 45-year-olds, this is right. their classic rock. Mm-hmm. This is what they grew up on. And these bands, you know, our both joint friend Madeline Scarpula who who yes. manages Kicks, talks about how really these bands doing the weekend thing Which and just to describe that, these guys will literally grab a one guitar in a gig bag, and fly to two shows and then go home on, on right. Sunday night and make a bunch of money. And they don't have to have a van going around. But for them, it's also much more sustainable. I mean, it's a much more sane way to live than to be out in a, especially for a 60 year old, than to be out in a bus for seven days. And Joe, Joey Allen from Warren, I think, pointed out in our book, you know, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night suck anyway in terms of getting asses in People the seat, out, so to yeah, speak. Yeah. yeah. So you're obviating that whole thing. And I think it's a really valid way for these bands to continue to exist. I um, like what
1: Cher Ross from Vixen says about it. Have bass strap, we'll travel.
3: Yeah, she doesn't even take a bass, you know. Like, no. And, and it,
1: Nobody and, travels with a rig anymore.
3: You know, and it's great because, like, look, you're going, you know what you're going to play, and I think the fans are there. Obviously, the fans, some of them are traveling. If it's in a casino, these bands aren't playing all cities all the time, but again, the fans are there. The fans are willing to spend the money. They're willing to spend money for the VIP, because not only are they willing to but they have the money That's you know, they're true. in their prime spending and buying years so it is a thriving or was until the last you know year you know you got to remember you know poison and motley crue they're not doing an arena tour next year they're doing a stadium tour like there are right. the fans are there and they want this stuff. And it's not just people who were there the first time around. I think, you know, you look at the some of the video numbers on YouTube of like how many people have watched like the Doctor feel good video or something. It's like it'll be like fifty two million or something. There's twenty five year olds and eighteen year olds and all kinds of people who have sort of happened. Upon this music and realized that it was, you know, it's sort of like this transmission from a more fun time when bands were like superheroes and stuff. And I think it's very attractive to them as well.
1: He's Tom Boujour, Rich Beanstalk with us, our guest here on the podcast. And we're talking about their book, Nothing But a Good Time. Now, I just want to know how you got the typesetters to do the umlau thing on the uh, oh, for because I've been trying to get my computer to do that when I'm typing about you guys, like it's not quite
3: working out. Oh, it's <laughs> it's uh, option U. Option
1: you okay cool. <laughs> for,
2: for what but it, the it, thing it, is, I mean, for ah. all the
1: guys, listen, for all the pictures that these guys were in, all the crazy poses and wild shit that they've done, and there's pictures of. It's so weird to go through like 500 pages and not see any pictures, but all of it, every quote is the kind of stuff that you just want to eat up because it's giving you details behind the scenes, sometimes from the middle of the scenes, how things happen, how things fell apart, and how people are doing. I think that's something that. Not Not a lot of people know about that, how these guys, the people they went to see like crazy in the 80s and when they were teenagers or whatnot, what are they doing now?
2: You know, one of the goals of the book was really just to be able to drop you into these moments and make it feel like, you know, you're there behind the scenes or that you're right there in the whiskey with them or, you know, at the troubadour and like really feeling like, you know, you're experiencing it as it's happening that's one of the benefits i think of doing the oral history is to be able to just let these guys you know set the scene for you and and you get a bunch of people talking about the same thing so you're sort of getting this kind of 360 like you know it's sort of this like surround sound type of thing where you're getting you're getting the perspective from like five different guys in the room and that in turn makes you feel like you're one of the guys in the room as well and you know hopefully in some instances we were really able capture that for people
0: did you find it challenging when you had five guys in a room and everybody's story was really different to make a story out of it or to tell that story I should say
3: you know most of the time people line up only really it's like only Don Dockin and George Lynch where you (laughs) actually get people saying the opposite thing (laughs) Yeah. Other people, it's more of a nuanced thing of like, you know, like, did this really need to happen or should that have happened? We've got this scene in the book where Cinderella pull out of their European tour because the Gulf War has started and they're getting nervous. And, you know, it's funny you ask. It's as disorderly as real life, you know? So like you've got Tom Mm -hmm. Kiefer saying like, well, we wanted to go home because we'd almost been on the Lockerbie flight the the year before and so we were freaked out and then we thought the gulf war were you know they were gonna bomb europe and then ross half and the photographer is like ah that's bullshit and jeff labar is like i don't know anything about the locker you know and so you do end up with these sort of nobody's contesting the fact is still there cinderella pulled out of a european tour and completely screwed themselves with the european promoters that is fact and that they chartered their own plane to come home right after a gig, that is fact. Like, everybody corroborates that. It doesn't make it hard. It makes it interesting to have everybody sort of with their different take on, like, why it should have happened or why it shouldn't have happened and who actually had some agent. Like, what's interesting also is finding out really who in all of these events has agency, like, who is actually making the things happen, you know, like, who's the boss, who's not the boss. But we didn't have that many instances where people, like, really flat out contradicted each other in a way where, like, we were stopped in our tracks and we were like, oh, my God, how do we navigate this? I mean, unless, Rich, do you remember any, like, was there anything where we literally could not figure out what, in fact, had happened?
2: I don't think so. I think that actually, you know, people had maybe a little bit of a different perspective on something sometimes or a little bit of a different opinion on sort of the motivations behind work. it. Yeah, 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 but there wasn't really much flat-out contradictions. Okay. Not that I can recall. You know, I, I mean, I would say, like, just by way of comparison, like I did a Kurt Cobain book a few years ago that was an oral history, and it was like, the guys in his band and Courtney Love and Kurt's mother were all in it. You know, especially like Courtney Love and Kurt's mom, pretty much anything one person said, the other said the exact opposite. Wow. Um, wow. And it was kind of wild to try to sort of piece together. I mean, you couldn't really piece together what happened in some cases. But, you know, I would just say in our case, everyone was actually very clear eyed about stuff that you're shocked. Sobriety is an amazing
1: thing, Rich.
2: But they weren't at the time. And you're like, wow everyone like what this person said and what that other person said it actually lines up and not only they were clear-eyed but they were also honest and i think those two things together like people were not trying it didn't feel like they were trying to spin themselves or spin a story like they were pretty honest about what happened and, and because of that I don't think we really ran into too much of that.
3: There's one thing which will never be solved, which is that George Lynch claims (laughs) that during the making of Tooth and Nail, (laughs) the producer Tom Warman trucked in a bunch of video games because he was getting kickbacks from the studio and... That not only did he bring in the video games, but then he had a change dispensing belt. I remember. And,
4: no. And then he
3: was like, and then he was like peeling out quarters for people and be like, give me, a, okay, give me, a, I'll make change for you. Blah, blah, blah. And so that was the story. And then when we, there's a thing called a legal read with the book. Uh huh. You know, where a lawyer reads the whole book for uh, the publisher's lawyer reads the whole book and they point out things like you can't say this, you can't say that, and a lot of times they'll ask you like, so this person who they say is like a. Pyromaniac, or whatever. Is he dead? And if you're like, no, then they're like, well, you should probably take that out. Um, But so I called Tom Worman back about that. I'm like, did you have like a change belt and like bring in video games? He's like, absolutely not. And so that's like sort of where you end up with this thing where you're like, okay, I guess you just print both. Like it's total cognitive dissonance and but that didn't happen that much but that is one of those cases where it's like literally person one says a and person two says b and we will never know
0: during all of that you mentioned the cinderella story which we both wanted to ask you about because i think it's an important story as far as the career of the band goes did the ripple effect head to america and bite them in the butt on this side of the pond when that happened
3: I don't think so i think that what happened was heartbreak station yeah i mean i think that really i think that that probably is symptomatic of maybe things starting to get a little bit weird maybe in the fan or egos getting a little bit inflated perhaps but really what happens is that larry Mazer, their manager says in the book that for some reason, Cinderella were never a surefire arena packing band. Like whether it's because Tom Kiefer wasn't living in LA and dating supermodels or getting arrested, or, you know, it was sort of a normal guy. For whatever reason, they never became like a super draw. And, you know, still they wanted to be competitive. And so they built this massive stage set with kudzu and all of like these ramps and like that. They were moving their own stage instead of using the arenas. A massive production for Art Break Station. And I think that that, you know, they went out and within four dates, the tickets weren't selling. They had to send the stage home. They had to cut the trucks. They had to do the right, whole thing. And right. I
1: don't think. And they I, weren't the only ones, though. Right. There, this happened not maybe not as, as depicted in the book, but this happened with a lot of bands. Bands who were in the middle of a large tour with big plans as things were changing in 91 and 92. So
3: I think that probably they would have had the same problems in the United States anyway. But what did change for them is that they did not, you know, like bands like Scorpions and a couple other bands were able to go make a living. I mean Scorpions obviously have this European base but Cinderella when things got tough then had nowhere to go is basically what the story is is like you know they didn't they hadn't developed a fan base or relationships in Europe where when the US dried up they could go play Germany or wherever else Bon Jovi was going to play and the, and they, they couldn't so they damaged a lot of relationships and it, it sort of blew a safety valve mm-hmm. for them
1: You guys gave a lot of insight into incidents because of the multifaceted response, the way that you guys did the book. One of the things that just chilled me because of the detail you gave was about the car crash that killed Razzle with Vince Neal and the way the story's told by the people who were around it and knew what was going on, even ones who weren't there. The way you told the story in the book, it just chilled me because I had no idea about the beer case being on his lap and being, you know, I just can't even imagine. And these are the things that don't always come out in the news or didn't back then. They come out now because people are talking in books like yours. It's called nothing but a good time. And I know I'm talking about one of the bummer moments of the book, but the subtitle is good too: the uncensored history of the 80s hard rock explosion, because other than when the lawyers tell you you've crossed the line, it sounds like you guys let it all hang out there. And I just think it's fucking awesome.
2: It's funny also that you mention that. Moment, because somebody I was just speaking to the other day who's reading the book and who is somebody who knows this stuff very deeply, that was the moment that they brought up in the book as well because the car accident with Vince, Neil, and mm. Razzle is something that, of course, we have all, if you're into this music, we have read about it so many times, mm. whether it's in the Motley Crue book or just on Behind the Music or whatever the case may be. So we weren't going to spend too much time going hey, into is, uh, it and treading preach. over... That same ground. But that piece about Razzle having the beer on his lap, and I think, if I'm remembering correctly, and Bryn Brydenthal says that, you know, he had bled out. And it, it's um, wow. it's, so it's it, kind it of harrowing. And it's not, yeah, it's not something that I had known. And again, the person I was talking to, he was like, I didn't know that. And it was like shocking to hear. And, and Bryn Brydenthal is someone who, she was Motley's publicist back then, and she was very close with the band. But she's not somebody that you hear from, that often or ever, and certainly not about this. And so she had this different perspective, and like, these are the facts that she has known all these years because she was there at the time. I mean, she's working with Vince. So you would imagine that she probably knows what was going on and she knows the facts. And again, with somebody who's very clear eyed about it. And so, like, to put that in there, it was like, well, We didn't want to sort of exploit that moment. And again, we spent very little time on it, but it's like, well, here's a piece. But it was
1: well told,
2: man. Yeah, and you can see it gives a little bit of insight into like how something that's just like, you know, a moment now that we all talk about and then this happened. It was a terrible, awful, harrowing, like bloody, gory thing that happened. And it should be respected for what it was and not just another thing on the timeline in the Motley Crue history, because it was really awful.
1: Well, I I saw Tom had to jump off, Rich. We want to thank you guys for coming on.
0: My final question is, Richard, after spending the time that you spent on this book and having written other books in the past, what is next for you?
2: (laughs) Well, I will answer that with sort of an answer and unfortunately sort of a non-answer. I mean,
0: A politician's answer.
2: Yeah. Well, one thing I will say is, is Tom and I actually have been batting around a few ideas for what we will tackle next. And I don't really want to say anything beyond that, but I I guess the only thing I would say is it will not be about 80s hard rock. But we do have a couple things in mind as far as the next book project. Otherwise, this book has been optioned by a production company to develop Potentially into like a documentary type of series. Um, oh, great. Wow. So that is. Congrats. You know, thank you. Yeah. And so as far as being as something connected to this, that is the next thing that we're working on. And then, you know, and then from there, that also being connected to a podcast and, and so on and so forth. But, but the main thing would be developing this into some sort of. A visual presentation and there is a production company behind it and potentially a director attached to the project that is not great yet, all good things man it looks and, like that might happen yeah
1: and, and thanks for taking time i know you guys are up to your armpits in it thanks for Happy taking the time it. to hop back on with us and so then we'll uh, make sure we get the information back to you guys about when both episodes will air and who's going to be joining us on that ends up being the final
0: guest list on the follow-up part
2: excellent Cool, man. All right. Thank Thank you, you, Richard. Thank you so
0: much, man. Have a great week. You too.
1: And once again, thanks to Tom and Richard for joining
0: us for another round on their book. Nothing but a good time. It is a phenomenal book, a great read. And if you want to learn a lot... That you probably didn't know just like us about that decade and how it all rolled definitely check the book out
1: i tell you what i know you always want to learn a lot of stuff about things that we talk about and that is why i have arranged for a dear old friend of mine someone that i've actually worked with i know him from his days in Dockin and dio and foreigner i'm talking about jeff Pilson next Summertime and a great pint go together like water, yeast, and hops. (laughs) And what a better place to go to get the pint that you want than Crooked Eye Brewery right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro.
0: With Pennsylvania's restrictions easing, there is live music and some other great events going on at Crooked Eye, so not only do you get that pint, but you get to have a good time with your friends as well.
1: They are fully open, and I went in to see the Crooked Eye Band, the full Crooked Eye Band, back together for the first time in over a year, and what a great time when they're in on second Saturdays. And you can get great music at Killer Crooked Eye near you at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne now. Stop on by, see live music, and have a pint of your favorites from Crooked Eye at Jamie's House of Music. Right in the heart of Delco. And there's something else happening at the brewery, Marcus. They are now serving spirits. Pennsylvania Craft Spirits. Now available along with your finest brews and all the other goodies they have at Crooked Eye and Hatboro. I just think it helps everybody to have what they want. And that's part of having a good time when you go in both at the Hatboro Brewery location and at Jamie's House of Music. So wine and cocktails there as well. It's all part of the fun at Crooked Eye. Check them out at crookedeyebrewery.com. The best way to keep up with what's going on at both locations is...
0: on facebook though they do a great job keeping us informed of what's happening at crooked eye or jamie's house of music on facebook
1: or in the cure for what ails you since 2014 check them out crooked eye brewery in the heart of hapro
0: and in the heart of delco
4: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
1: Well, I can definitely feel the effects of those crooked eye brews, those ABVs, so <laughs> let's get our uh, second half podcast guest on. He is in the book, Nothing But a Good Time. He's one of the great bass players of the 20th and 21st centuries. Let's welcome Jeff Pilson to The Amalance History of Rock and Roll. We're talking to people about the book, Nothing But a Good Time, because... People that we know, people that I know, like you, were there in those times. Uh, You remember a docking in those days. One of the things that Marcus and I were just talking about before we got on with you is how DIY the whole scene was, surprisingly to most people, with the option of hindsight. What was it like for you guys putting it all together when you were forming Dockin'?
5: Well, you know, I wasn't actually there when they formed Dockin'. I was forming my own bands at the time. and Well, wasn't
1: everybody? That's what the book told us, too. What yeah, were yeah. you doing b- before Dockin'?
5: Well, right before Dockin', I was playing, while I was doing a, a Top 40 band, I had just moved to L.A. Before that, I was playing with a guy by the name of Randy Hansen, who did a tribute to Jimi Hendrix mm-hmm. and was amazing at it. It still is, actually, to this day. But we had a band together where we did half his songs, half my songs. He sang half. I thing half. it was very cool but unfortunately it's 1982 and it was kind of progressive hard rock not something record companies were looking for in the least um at that time so i moved to la i joined a top 40 band and the docking guys by the time i hooked up with them they had their deal on electra the record was going to be coming out the first record was done but you know as far as diy they did a smart thing they went to germany and that's how they got picked up by a label over there and got some attention, which then got them their deal in America on Electra.
1: I know that the story of talent tell- making the record was told in the book told in there too, was how the whole album cover came together. Now you and I worked together for a short time at the end of the nineties mm-hmm. and having gotten to know you guys a little bit, During that time, I got to ask you, how is it possible the move that Don made when that record was coming out that Nick Brown didn't just fucking kill him?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Are you talking about uh, the The
1: name uh, and everything? Yeah.
5: It's a very convoluted story, but, you know, basically the record did come out first as Don Dockin for a minute and everybody flipped out, and uh, so they pulled it back and they put it out as Dockin, which, you know, ended up being a good long-term move. Yes. I don't think, you know... I mean, it's funny. I always wondered why Mick never got credit on Breaking the Chains because he did. I know he, I mean, everybody admits he came up with the phrase, so it sounded kind of odd to me. But then again, Don came up with the phrase tooth and nail, and George and Mick and I wrote the song about it, and he didn't get credit on that, so I guess it's the same thing. (laughs)
1: That's the way it kind of works in a band sometimes.
5: Come up with a phrase,
0: doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) Well, you guys, like everybody else, went through transition into the 90s. As uh, music moved forward, you guys moved forward, continuing to make albums and that's how we ended up working together for a short time at cmc i right. worked with you i guess on the back end of shadow life and the front end of erase the slate. And it was during that time that we had some really fun interactions.
5: A lot of that was a very, very, very fun period for me. So, so it's one of many great nights.
0: <laughs> you, being with Dokken through the 80s and into the 90s, got to see the transition firsthand of how everything changed. And a lot of times it was the media blaming it all on Teen Spirit, Nirvana, and Alice in Chains, but it really was more than that? Did you see these bands as they were growing firsthand? And what was your opinion of this newer music that was coming out at that time?
5: The thing that I had the hardest time with is that I didn't see where it was all that different. It just sounded like great new heavy rock to me. You know, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden in particular. I wasn't a huge Nirvana guy ever really. It was a little too punky for my personal tastes, although I appreciate it a lot. And I do see how Cobain was a great writer. But I loved Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. And they just sounded like rock to me. This whole alternative thing and all that shit. Mm -hmm. I just didn't get it. It just didn't make sense to me. So it was odd to me. What I did recognize, though, is that a lot of the bands in what was considered our genre at the time, and unfortunately has had the long-term name of hair metal, a lot of the bands in that genre had gotten stale. And the recordings were getting very formulaic. You know, everybody kind of had the same drum sounds. Everybody had the kind of the same guitar sounds. It had lost its original kind of rebellious vibe, too. The power ballad was important, and, you know, it was just too formulaic. I think, to have long-term legs with the public, so it was a change that needed to happen. I kind of get it. You know, Allison Chains and Soundgarden sounded fresher than our stuff did at that point, I think, or a lot of bands. But, you know, having said that, I mean, George came out with his Lynch Mob record, and that wasn't a hair metal record at all. Nope. It was very, very cool, and, and, you know, he did the best of anybody coming out of that, and I think that's why. I think he delivered a really strong record with a cool band that could have survived. You know, unfortunately, it didn't stay much longer, but I think they had the musical goods to survive you know the whole transition
1: especially that first album definitely. yeah
5: especially the first album. yeah because even by the second record he was kind of trying to reel it in and you know please people and you know when, when you do that it's all over it just really is then it kind of paved the way for
1: and to come back and reunite in between there though you spent time playing with the great ronnie james dio i did indeed Tell us about your time with Ronnie and his band. And uh, you came to visit me. That's where, for me, you had the nickname, the evil Jeff Pilsen, because that's how you were introduced by Ronnie that night on the air. I was and... going to
5: say, he, uh, yeah, <laughs> he,
1: he, he did. He did. It's so funny coming from him because neither of you, a bone of evil, <laughs> you're both two of the <laughs> nicest guys that I've ever met in rock music.
5: Actually, he gave that to me because I came up with the riff for the song Strange Highways. <laughs> Which he just thought was the coolest, most evil riff, and it is. It's kind of ironic because you're right. I'm not particularly an evil guy. It's probably not the. But first he said
1: you're a prankster too. He said you were a prankster <laughs> on the road, and that's kind of led to it too.
5: Oh, huge prankster! So is he? So <laughs> was me. By the way, he he and really, really tremendous pranksters. Oh, we had so much fun. One night they actually. Got the furniture in our lighting guy's room stuck to the ceiling. They, you know, hammered it in and everything. I mean, a whole fit. Just great. Oh my just God. great
1: stuff. Great. How do you come stuff. up with that stuff? Who who decides, like, hey, let's do this?
5: Uh, I think that was Ronnie, that particular one. But uh, <laughs> wow. it's hard to say. But yeah, it's amazing. Playing with Ronnie was, was just such an incredible experience because, I mean, not only was he a great friend, phenomenal musician, but just a good hearted person. And it was a great experience because you had all the friendships there. I mean, he and Vinny and I were very, very close, very close as friends. And then you had this experience of being in this kick-ass band with this singer who was so powerful. It really taught me a lot. I learned a lot of lessons being in D.O. And, you know, I tried to take them with me when I did go back to Dock, And I think we became a little bit stronger of a live band in some ways after that. And what can I say? I I think about him almost every day.
0: I feel you, man. When you got back together with Doc and after five years off, however long it was, how was it different for the band getting back together?
5: Well, I got to say, and and I'm going to give Don credit for this. The first thing we did together was an acoustic show, which we then recorded and turned it into an acoustic record. And that was a brilliant idea. What a great way to kind of break the ice and come back and feel our chemistry on kind of an intimate level. You know, when you didn't have the big amps behind you, it was like, Acoustic guitars. I mean, George played through a little amp, but it was just a great way, you know, got our voices back in blend, which, I mean, I don't think that ever would have gone away. We just had this really cool, magical vocal blend, but it was great. So when we did, that kind of focused us, and I think it made us better ready to finish what became the Dysfunctional Record, because, you know, Don and I had started the Dysfunctional Record about a year earlier. Anyway, so it gave us a chance to finish that. It was a good coming together. It, we, I think we all recognized that we had a chemistry, and it was good for a minute. So-
3: <laughs>
1: somewhere down the line uh you hooked up with mick jones and became part of foreigners current lineup how long's that been now
5: 17 years it was, it was actually God. july of 2004 so yes i am 17 i'm the same age as my daughter who was who <laughs> five weeks old uh, and my or six weeks old and my first uh foreigner gig Which is a great thing, because that's a great way of always remembering how long I've been in the band. (laughs) Oh, my daughter again? Okay, that's it.
1: (laughs) I remember going down. I was working at MGK, the Classic Rock Station. And I went down to Atlantic City to cover you guys playing, I guess, at the House of Blues down there.
5: Did you say Atlantic City? Yeah. Oh, there was a House of Blues in Atlantic City? I didn't remember
1: that. Oh, wow. The, The space is still there. And it was you, and that's when Jason Bonham was the drummer. So that's Mm -hmm. why it's it's right at the beginning, I guess, of when you joined the band. A guy who had the longest run other than Mick, Tom Gimble just retired. I was uh, working with him. I've heard wonderful things about him as a player and as a guy.
5: Yeah, well, all true. I mean, highly, highly, highly talented. I mean, like... Way up there in the talent level, able to play any instrument, great singer, just fabulous singer, great guy. Um, you know, the thing is, he had just been doing it a very—he had been on the road nonstop for forty-one years. I mean, not non—you know, it's but. not like every single day for forty-one years, but practically. And you know, it just came a time, and you know, he called us up and he said, "Guys, I just—I don't want to do this unless I'm excited to do it and I'm not feeling it."
1: Do you think that there's other people that have been home during the pandemic? Marcus and I have been talking about this. Bands that just aren't going to come back or artists who are just not going to come back. Stories like Tom's.
5: Yeah, probably. Because it was the pandemic that kind of made him realize, oh, I kind of like not traveling all the time. Like being home. practice my sax for hours a day and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, honestly, Tom deserves to have a life. You know, he went a long time. You know, it was hard for him to have relationships because of the road. So... It just it certainly makes sense. And yes, I think there probably are other bands. You know, they wouldn't have announced it yet, but there's probably some other people that are going to be very hard to coax out of their homes nowadays.
1: Well, oh, I saw that Brad Whitford was saying like he doesn't envision Aerosmith getting back on the road because like they all like you said, and probably like Tom, they got home, they got comfortable and said,
5: Do we have to do that? And those guys in particular, they certainly don't have any cash flow problems. So <laughs> yeah, you know. True. So yeah, it could be. I could see that happening more and more.
1: You mentioned Vinny from your time in Dio. He and his brother Carmine are doing a podcast. Have you been on with them yet?
5: I was. Probably close to a year. It was during the pandemic, so mm-hmm. several, several months ago. But yeah, it was fun because those guys are great. They're great friends and it's just fun.
0: Did you pick up any new hobbies or interests during the pandemic that are completely out of your realm of maybe what people would expect or even you would expect?
5: Well, I didn't pick it up during the pandemic. I did beforehand, but I'll tell you something. What I did religiously during the pandemic was Inferno Hot Pilates twice a week, religiously. My wife has a yoga studio where they also teach hot Pilates. Well, during the pandemic, of course, she had to go virtual. And it was something that we did, you know, she would teach it out of here and I would do it in the front room, you know, through Zoom. It was great. <laughs> you know, great. Um, I
1: but, would love to have but, a video of that, you know. And it was so
5: great because, you know, then I didn't put on a hundred pounds during the pandemic and all that other stuff, You know, which like some is very nervous. easy to do.
0: Yeah.
5: <laughs> it's really been good for my health. I just feel healthier overall, you know, a little leaner, definitely more muscle, and just a better overall energy. I mean, I was feeling pretty good anyways, but this Pilates thing has really been great. And the other thing I did was I started a meditation class that I teach every Monday at uh, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you go to yoga at hotforyogascv.com, you will find information on how to take that class, and it's great. It's really cool. been fun.
1: With the yoga, you definitely are ahead of a lot of people who've been talking about fatigue getting back on the road. Just the physical act of holding a guitar for a couple hours a night. How was your first run? You just got back from uh, your first post pandemic run with Farner, and how you feel?
0: Second,
5: we actually did one in one oh. at the end of May too. We did four shows, and then we took a couple of weeks, and now we just got done with uh, I think eight more shows or whatever. It was great. I mean, I think because I I did try and really pay attention to keeping myself somewhat in shape, I was in a better position than usual, you know. Because I mean, I, I haven't gone that long off the road in forever, thirty five years or something. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, but you know, there's still a couple of muscles there that you know, just you know, no matter how much you work at home, you're not going to get the head banging muscles right. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, I felt it a little.
0: Going back to your early days before you started playing in bands, who were some of the inspirational bass players that really, really got you excited about bass?
5: Well, the first, I mean, when I very first started, you know, Jack Bruce from Cream, that was a big deal. But when I got into Chris Squire from Yes!, That was what changed everything for me. The minute, I mean, and I am not exaggerating. The minute I heard Roundabout the first time a very dear friend played it for me, I just said, that's what I want to sound like. And so I started playing with a pick. I bought a Rickenbacker bass. I did, you know, played through a stack of 12s. I mean, I did everything to sound like Chris Squire, and it was a tremendous education. And really, I mean, I learned all those Yes songs, which is good for you anyways. And it was just a tremendous learning experience. So he was the one guy, I mean, again, there's a lot of guys I love. But he was the one guy that stood out, you know, above the rest and really gave me a lot of, I mean, seriously, I think because of Chris Squire, you know, and prog rock in general kind of got me getting into a lot of classical music. And then it got me to take up string bass, which I did and, and majored in in college. I didn't graduate, but I got to college doing that. And I learned a lot about music. And really, it all starts from the fact that Chris Squire's bass so inspired me.
1: The things you can learn if you take the time to talk about them, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Jeff Filson is our guest on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, and we thank you for joining us us, uh, giving us your insights into our Nothing But A Good Time follow-up, and for talking about Ronnie James Deal. I've always got time to talk about Ronnie.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much, Jeff. We definitely appreciate your time.
5: Hey, guys. I so appreciate it as well. Thank you. It's great great seeing you, Ray. Always, and man. That brief time we worked together was was very special. And we had fun. We had fun, and we were doing the right thing. We were giving it some good, honest energy. So, Guys, thank you so much, and I, I will talk to you again sometime in the future, I'm sure. Anytime, so- man. And stay Sounds well. Good. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Hope guys. to see you in bye town bye. soon. Take care. Thank you again to Jeff Pilson for taking time to chat about a very important decade that had a huge impact on the history of rock and roll, as well as more about their incredible book called Nothing But a Good Time, a book that we both highly recommend you read. You can follow us on Facebook at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, as well as Twitter at Imbalanced Histo, and on Instagram, The Imbalanced History of Rock. Rock and roll.
1: Time to leave the Dark Doc Studios and go out into the world steamy and mean as it is these days.
0: <laughs>
1: so until the next time we get together and do this crazy podcast, I'm Ray Coob.
0: I'm Marcus Goldman.
1: And this is the Imbalance History
0: of Rock and Roll.
4: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.